Hello and welcome to another Architecture Podcast. I'm George Bradley, architect and director of London-based studio Bradley van der Straten. And every fortnight, I talk to a different architect from around the world to discuss an inspiring house that they have designed. In this episode, I am joined by John Choi, one of the co-founders of Croffy Architects. We talk about their project, Loon de Sang, located in New South Wales, Australia. The project is a former dairy farm bought by a couple who are now ambitiously rewilding the land with native hardwoods that will take between 50 and 300 years to mature. Croffy have worked for the couple for over a decade, creating several structures on the land, including sheds for the forestry equipment, and most recently, the pavilion, which is now the couple's permanent residence. To say this project is stunning is an understatement. Nestled within the landscape, this home has been built to last. And like the hardwood trees they are planting, there is no doubt the home will certainly outlive the couple. This is architecture responding to the idea of a 300-year growth cycle. I enjoyed talking to John about this unique project and finding out what it was like to work with a client with such a long-term vision. If you'd like to find out more about Croffy and the Loon de Sang project, you can find more information on the episode page at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy listening. Hello, John. Thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast. Thanks, George, for having me. So we're going to be talking about the Luna de Sang Pavilion today. Um, which is, well, this podcast is about homes predominantly. Um, and I think, well, would you describe this project typically as a home? Does it fit that, that category? Well, at, at the start, I thought it was a home predominantly, but yeah, quickly yeah. it sort of became aware it's much more than that. So um, look forward to sharing the story. So what is the, the project for somebody that doesn't know anything about it? How would you kind of introduce it? Yeah, I guess um, the first, just to locate the site for everyone, um, it's a project that's located in the Byron hinterland, which is the easternmost uh, tip of Australia. And it sits sort of um, in a semi-tropical area between um, between Queensland and New South Wales, um, near that border. Um, it, the client approached us uh, with a brief for um, some shed structures and a dwelling and they shared stories of um, just starting on a journey on a forestry project on the site. And I had interpreted that to be predominantly about the house and the uh, productive um, nature of the project being quite secondary. And um, when I visited the site, it sort of quickly dawned on me. It was in fact, completely the other way around because <laughs> there were so yeah. many workers, um, the site, up there um, is a site that has become, uh, at that time, degraded over many decades. Uh, it was uh, originally a, a rich ecosystem up there called the Big Scrub, which its um, genealogy goes really long and long way back with a um, very rich ecosystem under, underlying that area. Uh, and then uh, over the 1900s, and uh, more recent times, it had been used for farming. Um, mm-hmm. The early loggers cleared a lot of the site and then it was used for mainly da- dairy farming. And when farming 
practices changed. The area sort of fell into disrepair and, um, yeah, when our sites purchased the site, it was all weeded up. <laughs> a lot of, yeah. um, lot of uh, half-fallen structures and um, uninhabitable um, bit of land in, a, in what's underlying a very rich um, ecological area. And it takes they, – they got excited to do a forestry project because they actually originally went up to get a bed made by a well-known joiner up there. And right. they ended up having a conversation about how we're running out of hardwoods because hardwoods take so long to grow and they're becoming um, more and more rare. And um, that really got them curious about um, – about the beauty of timber, about sort of um, landscape, about forestry. And there are a couple with a lot of a sense of adventure. So <laughs> mm -hmm. um, they were looking, I guess, for a new project or something to engage with. And that sparked a little imagination and they purchased the site. And by the time we had, uh, they approached us, the project had been going for a year and a half. And um, upon arriving at site, it, it takes a lot of effort to um, revegetate and um, restore that landscape. And I would have seen probably like 10 to 20 people on site de-rocking, preparing the land, doing a lot of the, um, the, the replanting work um, of that landscape. And yeah, you really start to get the sense of the scale of what they're looking mm -hmm. to do. So these these clients, where when they were going out to buy this table, where were they travelling from? Where were they based? They're based in Sydney, and so Australia is quite a large country. But um, yeah. this bar in Hinterland is about an hour flight away, so it is quite a distance away. Um, yeah, it's um, as I said, it's a very beautiful um, uh, location. So uh, very um, very lovely place to visit. They yeah. didn't go to find a project. Um, they went yeah. to um, see um, this well-known um, furniture maker who makes a modern art nouveau, nouveau um, furniture that they taken a liking to. And, yeah. Um, yeah, through the conversations with him and through looking at the timbers he had um, in his workshop, just began this sort of curiosity and the project, the idea of this project emerged. But just getting a sense of that scale. So we're, they're coming from a, probably an urban environment to, to somewhere that I'm imagining is extremely remote and it's an hour flight away and it's a decision to to kind of up sticks and completely change their lives. This is already something special before there's even an architect involved, right? That, that's right. I, I think the... Um... Probably the mo most accurate way to say it, the curiosity was sparked then. Um, yeah. I think the sense of the scale of the project was the project grew as it um, as it as it went along, both in terms of its scale as well as their commitment to what it mm -hmm. could be for them. Um, but yeah, the the early spark of that uh, interest um, happened there, and it is not only a long distance away from Sydney. But it is some distance away from any of the settlements um, inland, so it's about an hour inland, and it's really kind yeah. of at the cusp of where sort of the agrar agrarian landscape um, 
starts to drop away and uh, on the next nexus to more wild landscape and yeah. um, and and the ge- geology of that area is really interesting too which is really why the area has its um, ecology it's yeah. you know I, I, I say it's kind of like the lucky country in the lucky country <laughs> um, uh, the, the reason for its long, uh, its deep um, genealogy is that it's, it's, as I said, it's on the easternmost tip of Australia, and and really that tip um, originated uh, when Australia was joined with Antarctica, and it was one of the kind mm. of um, prominent edges to the water. So obviously that's where uh, first signs of life and things sort of start to emerge as ecology starts to develop, but. When Australia was a lucky country that broke away from Antarctica and started move further north to to warmer climate, as as you know, as our um, as um, time passed on, and this area just happened to stop underneath a uh, volcanic fault line, right, in the perfect distance away from the coastline. So not only did we have this. Um, caldera, uh, volcanic activity, which created the mountain forms and the topography of that area, giving the varying heights, as well as the rich soil kind of coming back from the earth back back onto um, onto surface. But mm. because of the right distance away from the water, it also meant that you get the rainfall, the natural rainfall that falls um, down here. So you you have all the combinations to reinvigorate the um, the inherent um, makeup that was um, yeah. there that goes back a really long way. And um, the big scrub, as well known up there, was originally about 90,000 hectares of um, rainforest that has that deep yeah. gene- genealogy. And uh, unfortunately, through all the logging on the early 1900s, because the population settling up there at that time, People weren't aware of the the uniqueness of um, what's there, and um, primarily seen as a resource. So um, there was only 300 hectares left um, from that original 90,000. And wow. and learned to saying um, as a project adds another 140 hectare to that. So it's slowly bringing some of that back yeah. into that area. But a very kind of slow, very patient process and a very ambitious yeah. ambitious plan it's a very long-term thinking um so how as a project is this one of those things that arrives as an email that piques your curiosity or did, did you know these clients already was were you already connected in some way i'm just curious as to you know do, is this one of those things that came in as an email of like oh this looks interesting and what what prompted you to then get on a plane and fly one hour to go and have a look at this remote site well, it, we um, the clients got recommended to us through um, someone we knew, um, and they came quite sort of cautiously because they mm-hmm. they were looking for the right architect, I guess, to partner with them on on this. And um, it's it's I can imagine it's a hard thing for a client to know because yeah. it's not like you're buying something off the shelf. So you're trying to read how the relationship might work, what kind of ideas. Might, they might be able to bring to the table as well as how well they can actually listen and work and engage um, with them. Um, so, um, yeah, the first – we met a couple of times <laughs> before we were invited up to have, check out the site. Yeah. 
And, and I think it's that first sets of conversations on site really helped um, set the foundation to the project. And it was really an innocent observation when I was up there. Once I realized how much work was happening on site, mm. I just asked, well, how long do these trees take to grow? And I remember Andy and Deidre saying, well, you know, the fast ones, maybe about 60, 80 years. The, the, the good ones take about 300 years. Yeah. And I remember sort of looking at them going, so you're just only going to start see the start of this. And I think the coin dropped for all of us that it's actually quite, quite unique to do something that goes beyond one's lifetime. And mm. to to start on something, you'll never really see the full layers that it may become in, in that kind of time frame. And, yeah, that really helped, um, I guess, set the foundation to the conversations and, and framing of the project in the way that we um, engage with them. And how did that start? Was there a brief? Was there, was there any inkling, actually, at that time that you, this might be something you'd be involved in for the next decade um to, to oh, not, no. multiple buildings no not not at that time i think even then um it started dawning that the uh the working part of the project is going to be quite a focus um mm -hmm. but at the time yeah i had no idea that it would be a, a decade-long journey um and with the a residential part coming really right at the end mm -hmm. um i mean there's a lot i want to find out about this project but for what i know now already about it and reading about this project there's there's a few buildings on site you've been working on this for a few years um and that just there's two sheds that are on the site that have already had a lot of kind of media attention and they're very beautifully designed they're not if you know if somebody said you designed a shed you kind of think okay great but these are very these are special right um there's two sheds on the site and then there's the pavilion that i think is probably what we'll mostly talk about um today which is 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 the home but is also partly a visitor it's got a sort of public aspect to it could you sort of just summarise before we kind of go into sort of detail and talking about the design approach and and what these buildings are like and what you've done? Just summarise what what actually is this place now as it as it currently stands and what what you've done there. What is it architecturally? What is it as a as a building? Yeah, well, it's a it's a working site. Um, uh, there are actually now four sheds. So the two of the right. sheds that. Uh, um, uh, what you've seen are part of the original main site and together with the pavilion they do form a composition on the main site there are two other sheds as well um, now that they're living up there um, the pavilion is used as their house and um, they have a large family that come and visit them um, they stay in nearby dwellings um, some of them on site and others outside of the formal Lundersang site but nearby um, there's also uh, Andy uh, has retired and has taken on glass art as his main um, main pursuit. So there's a glass art studio there uh, combined with a gallery. Um, there are furniture makers. Um, there's other work uh, around the forestry and timber milling that occurs on site as well. And and the general upkeep of the plantation. 
so it's a working plantation and these these sheds are there for for the work that is happening and to to rewild this this rainforest that, that's it and now they're yeah. doing this um uh, the uh, the similar kind of work for other sites so mm-hmm. there's there's work happening um so the 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 team that's been built up doing this project are carrying out similar kind of work um on other sites around that region as well yeah it's it's kind of like a community then they've built from nothing over time they've kind of built a community of that's for a family but also for a lot of people that must be working here as well that's it that's it i th- i think the nice thing is um through the length of time you know it's not the sort of project where you feel like you've designed some you've conceived something and it's kind of mm. been built because there's been um we've designed each project one at a time and we've seen the changes on site the the conversations get kind of deeper and broader and we we sort of get lost in the transformation um as it um goes along so it's it's it feels much more like the projects emerge through that interaction like we are, <laughs> there's a less distance between sort of the classic or you conceive something in the abstract you tender yeah. it and you get it built because it's happened over organically over iterative process over the um over a decade it does feel sort of reflecting back as more like kind of the interactions all of those interactions with um with everyone involved um meant that both the use of the site um the the whole um shape and the kind of sense of place um yeah lots of layers has just kind of emerged um through yeah through multiple interactions and the project didn't start with the house that's correct right yeah we we started on the sheds first so one of the kind the of interesting thing, way around right yeah 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 i wasn't expecting that no yeah (laughs) no absolutely (laughs) because the classic thing kind of shows the priorities well that's right you know you just kind of assume you know most people the the working part is the bit of the hobby part and really Mm. it's primarily for their residential use but yeah in this case it was the other way around and um and and again, I guess back to that start about the length of time and the commitment um, to transforming this site um, meant that um, even when it came to the buildings, it was like, well, we can talk about it as a working shed, but who knows what it's going to be in 20 years' time or 50 years' time or 300 years' time. So, um, and in Nigeria, we, we, we looked at a lot of projects that have that have had that long length of time, whether it's sort of vineyards or certain um, communities that have evolved over a long period of time. So um, much of the discussion was around, well, how do you, yeah, what anchors your (laughs) um, design? Because the use may evolve and change over time. And really it was about um, trying to connect to the landscape and um, the particularities of this project, of the place and this project, and mm-hmm. um, being more fluid about how uses may evolve over time. And yeah. we've already seen that evolve over time. The, the first shed um, is now a multi-purpose space. It's a function space. Um, 
I think when we when we were talking when we were deciding, we thought, oh, well, maybe that will become the showroom for the Timber, etc. So it's yet to have that sort of full time use. But I think there's been some uh, well, there's certainly been some um, uh, events around that down there as well. But it is now used as a general multi purpose space, yeah, multi program yeah. space. Well, there's a you know talk, talking about where to kind of start and how to approach something. It's really interesting here of something that's over such a long period of time but one term that's come back a few times that in, in articles that you've written or has been on your website is referring to some of these buildings as sites ordering devices um i'm curious what what do you mean by that because to me it sounds like that's you're using something to place some sense of order into something that seems so timeless is that is that correct yeah yeah look we we're really really interested in um um, the distinctions in each um, project and particularly the place that it's in. Um, and we're interested in kind of our work amplifying those qualities that are latent in that context, Some, quite a lot in that sort of physical context, but sometimes it's um, got to do with with uh, particular aspirations of the client or particular nature of the use or the way that um, that plays out. And that's been um, an interest across yeah, many projects. You, you mentioned our Times Square project in New York, and that's very much in the same vein. In a, in a way, the two are in complete opposite settings. One's very urban. Yeah. <laughs> and one's as landscape as you can get. But in, in terms of how do you um, conceive something that can draw the broader power of that setting and how people engage with it and change the psychological sense of the place and um, mm. is something we're really interested in and, and um, it's in the same spirit we took um, for this project. Um, knowing that the, this site, um, about 70% of the site um, is... Um, is 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 uh, is the landscape? So there's only a very small portion that's actually been left for um, their um, habitation. So um, we were very interested to structure how you um, experience the site. You know the the layers of experience coming into the site, and where mm -hmm. you start to see different structures, and how you might see um, those in a way that can amplify the sense of the the broader setting that's emerging in front of you. So um, yeah, that's, yeah, I guess that's what I meant by site ordering device or site yeah, structuring well device. <laughs> well, it's that, I mean, the first introduction to this project for me was through um, Ceres and Ellie. So in a previous guest on the podcast and, and she picked this house as um, the one that she'd visited and had been the most inspiring for her. If she had to sort of pick one and describe it, which I will be asking you later as well. But um, she she picked out this house and the the pavilion and described it. The key thing that she was saying about it of what was so amazing is that it felt like architecture in this space where there weren't walls. The walls were the rainforest around the vegetation and all, all very kind of open sided. Um, and that is a really distinctive, it's very different to the sheds because it's probably a very different typology, a different thing that you're responding to. But um, this this is sort of nestled in a valley, isn't it? It seems to be inside the landscape. But I loved that description of how the 
the nature effectively is the facade for the building. That's what's kind of shielding you and that's what's... Um, so maybe talk a little bit about... If you could just tell me a little bit about that because you mentioned there wasn't much land. There isn't much land here that is for habitation. Is this a, Was this a very natural location to build something where you're already thinking like, oh, we could use this as the kind of walls of the property? Yeah, well, the pavilion... Um... Um, because it was the last thing we um, worked on, it went through just even the where it may sit, it went through lots of um, iterations in the overall master plan. Initially, we, um, uh, because there's a small sliver of that open space that's left for habitation, mm-hmm. we imagine, and there's a beautiful fig tree on this sort of um, little um, uh, long um, spine, which has mm-hmm. a fall to the north. With the um, with the with the forest that will arise in front of you in the foreground and a distant view to the mountains um, and and the caldera and the gorges that are sort of in the distant mm-hmm. background, so a real layered um, um, view out that can connect um, the site proper to the broader setting it sits in, and mm-hmm. um, we had originally thought that would be a great location for the pavilion. But the more we um, engaged with the clients and the project, it was um, the sense that this sort of there was more power to leave that sliver of that landscape um, uh, untouched, in a sense, yeah. as a space that you can just go out um, when you're experiencing walking around the site to experience it without any architecture. Um, and... The, so the pavilion ended up um, coming um, a little bit sort of further. Uh, the, there's a set of um, – the boundary to the side sits on the ridge line that climbs up um, yep. on the southern side. And um, there was another location where there was already some previous caverns and work um, that was set up previously because it, it is quite well located in terms of getting some protection just on the um, the northern edge of that ridge line. Um, it does give you some um, level setting as well as the distant views whilst being mm-hmm. quite discreet in that landscape. So um, the house is located, the pavilion is located there and it's a really simple arrangement. There's a front part which is acts much more like a town hall gathering pavilion um, yeah. So, um, and then a back, um, back part of the house, which um, has contains the bedrooms and a second living area, which is really nestled into that topography. So it feels quite sort of grounded and um, embedded in that landscape. And uh, yeah, you can't uh, when you're in the side now. The landscape's all grown. You really can't. Um, you can't actually see the house very easily. <laughs> it is something yeah. that's set to be discovered as you come quite closer. And uh, that um, idea of no walls and the landscape sort of fusing fusing with the architecture uh, is a common theme on all the structures. So mm-hmm. um, a, a, a part of the um, forestry work and preparing the site, there's a lot of rock that's in the ground that needs to be de-rocked. So we had access to this fantastic um, um, stone that we could use for the building. So there's a lot of stone work um, in the project and we use that as um, as walls that may emerge, um, sometimes kind of low retaining walls that come up 
mm-hmm. and form um, key uh, taller wall elements within the house. So that's what structures that front part of the house with a, a large, simple roof that leans down um, to contain the gathering space. Yeah. Um, and the scale of that space, it's sort of somewhere between um, a space that could hold all of their family and feel quite comfortable as a gathering, uh, almost a public space in a sense, or a community space, um, yeah. but brought down enough so that if it's just Andy and Deidre up there, they can still feel um, human scale enough to use and enjoy. There, so, so it's still it's still private family space because you, you use the term town hall. Um, yes. <laughs> like area. Is this, this it's not somewhere then for sort of congress it's not for members of the public or for no, staff no, but that might be working on some, it's yeah. No, no, but it's but the reason why we use it was because again part of the conversations were well if um uh if because of the length of time um mm. the they we we spoke about well we, you know when this is passed to the next generation, you know. And um, when the site gets more established, who knows how these structures might be used. So um, there were conversations that if it does become um, distinct enough and valued enough to that community, the way that it may uh, evolve in how it's used may change. Mm -hmm. So, um, again, it was designed to relate to the broader ambition of the project and the site (laughs) and less um, knowing that, in, in the current time frame, it will be used for residential use um, and yeah. for the extended family, and, and yeah. but it may change in time. Yeah. dominant form of this pavilion is there's um it's about the roofs isn't there? there's three rectangular roof forms that you can see in the landscape and each of them are all in a different angle i think the biggest one is probably that the, the town hall one that's the sloping roof which is a very kind of not i'm not going to say typical pavilion space because it's pretty spectacular but it's in the sense that it's an open-sided pavilion there's a big sloping roof and glass on three three and a half sides yeah. and um and that's got in terms of pragmatically that's a it's a big living space opens out onto not that's the part that doesn't open out directly onto rainforest there's green area there's, there's yeah it's it's more yeah around. there's more domestic landscape around that the, that's where the foliage and the um, planting is a bit finer um yeah. because the yeah the the actual um, rainforest landscape is yeah much gutsier and it is it's some yeah. distance away and it's much taller too and etc it's not yeah it's got a different character and this space kind of works as a living space in itself it's got it's got a big open plan kitchen in there as well um what's can you tell me a bit about just focusing on this space here because it's got then elements that touch on others but the predominant design features here is that this big sweeping ceiling but then the concrete and the way you've designed that it's I mean, you've mentioned public buildings. We're on kind of public building proportions, aren't we, in terms of the open mm. spans of these. The glass openings are just completely column-free with these massive concrete beams above them supporting the roof. Um, what was yeah. the 
the decision making process here in terms of choosing the materials must have been an extremely important element of of this project can you talk through maybe the material just the general material palette here of the concrete and the timber yeah look i think for your audience it's um, probably the simplest way to describe the house is there are a series of walls that um that are like contours in the landscape that um, weave and stitch the structure and and create the different spatial arrangements um, on the landscape and then it's uh, and then the roofs are kind of gently placed on top of those for cover and protection. Um, one of the the main, as you say, the main town hall, the living space, has a, a metal roof that's um, a, a single plane that sits hovering hovering over that living area, as well as cantilevering cantilevering over um, the pool area to provide yep. some covered shade protection and outdoor sitting areas there as well as the front entry. The back roof is a concrete and timber, a flat um, form roof, um, which um, sits quite low and um, um, hugs the ground, I guess, and then and then the contours again that wrap around it. So it is a quite a grounded um, architecture in one level, and just because of the fall of the bulkery opening out to the front. The material, the stone, as I say, just because of the um, the amount of stone we had access to that is the direct link to the working part of the site. It just became a natural choice to um, use. Um, the other key material um, was concrete. Um, when we used that, we talked a lot whether we should use timber, you know, given given the um, given the nature of the overall project. Um, but I think the thing that um, uh, resulted in um, us being galvanised about the concrete is its um, longevity and something sense of permanence. This links this sort of uh, notion of time, really long time, and something that can um, uh, feel uh, committed over a long period of time. And so those elements um, are really um, was was conceived as the almost the permanent things, whereas the the other layers of timber, glass and steel are things that may be adapted, may be changed, may evolve over time. So it's it's those more masonry uh, or the stone and the concrete really being very careful that they um, establish the arrangement on site. So it it, mm-hmm. it talks to the broader setting and the broader site relationships whereas the yeah. other elements can be adapted and ch- may change over time to suit uh, different kind of use uh, that may happen over time. Which is, I think that's a really interesting discussion for, for this project because of the nature of what they're doing with the land. There's something that's thinking very long-term in terms of thinking beyond their lifetime and rewilding and growing these, these, these slow-growing hardwood trees and effectively doing something for the planet in one small way on on one piece of land and um and you you could in in theory the architecture you could take two very different approaches there could have been an approach here that could have been a very unpermanent mm. approach to the architecture of saying well actually the building is temporary and the work is ongoing and the buildings could keep changing but here it's it's very much the opposite view of thinking do it well do it once and 
do it to last. And you've mentioned, I've seen you mention somewhere before about conceiving this design as a landscape of ruins, mm. um, which which I really love and is quite a recurring theme on this podcast. Actually, I've had a few architects that have oh, right. spoke of yeah. the kind of love of their, thinking of their architecture as a ruin um, yeah. and letting nature kind of take over and do its thing or future generations. Yeah. The ruin aspect here is definitely this concrete structure. I can picture that being here for a long time, but maybe everything else crumbling away underneath. That's it. That's um, it. There's a romance how today, did that, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, how did did that really kind of inform the way, the forms, that you, which, not just the materials, but the way you design these forms as well? Uh, well, um, I, th- I think it's the scaling of the site, um, uh, site, uh, Side experience, you know, we knew where the overall plantation is going. So, in 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 the larger scale, we can understand the relationship in um, different location to the transformation that will happen within the site. We also could quite clearly see the relationship between this site and the broader context it sits in. And that really started to help shape how you enter into the site and how you move through the site to um, start to kind of open up and reveal um, and where the key moments on the site will be in in, um, in getting that overall site experience. So as you scale those large experiences down to a particular location, then there's secondary scales of subsets of experience that's possible. And that helped structure, again, how you might come off the main um, circulation pathway onto the smaller place you belong to and the kind of um, relationship, visual relationship, relationship to sun, relationship to uh, nearby landscape and distant landscape you can have. And so those relationships were structured by the more permanent um interventions um in the project being the stone walls and concrete whereas the um the layers that are um, filling in that in terms of enclosure or joinery or linings and things um were um timber and more lightweight in its um material and and i guess our um our approach to how they may change and evolve and the, you've mentioned that this is a, this is a strong collaboration between architect and client. I mean, it has to be over this period of time as well. You'd expect, um, but what was the involvement of the client on on the pavilion design, particularly because this is designing for them as a place to live in? Did they have a very particular brief of what they wanted programmatically in this building? Yeah, there were, um, uh, you know, the perfect mixture of being really strong and clear about um, what they wanted. Like, but um, So we got um, this sense of sort of an- being anchored to the site was something that was strong from day one, you know, when, when we first started on the project. Um, we um, – and this um, notion of stitching structures into the landscape that came through um, even images of Andy Goldsworthy's um, work and – um, other yeah. sort of both artworks and um, precedent um, architecture that they shared that they connected with. Um, but um, they were also very open in lots of ways because I think, you know, um, I think um, they never imagined the project will grow to this um, uh, intensity, but as well as mm-hmm. scale. 
And I think um, when uh, it's fair to say that I think the way that they imagine those um, aspirations or, or, or um, brief requirements, how it may evolve. So it was a process of really iterative dialogue. And again, because it's happened through such a long period of time, we had that pleasure of talking and sharing, testing physically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we also had fantastic um, builders and uh, builder and craft people on uh, on this project. So we had one um, builder, Lyle, who has seen every structure on site through. So we got to know him and his team. And so we learned what was capable yeah. <laughs> on project one, and that allowed us to push further certain um, things in the second structure we do and the third structure we do, et cetera. So there is this sort of lovely way that um, all of these um, uh, design ideas as well as um, uh, uh the way the project can mean something for them and to the site sort of evolved um, over that long period, long period of um, engaging with them. So could you give an example of something on the pavilion then as the, the latest built um, part of this site? What's an example of something that was pushed further here that you kind of tested earlier on on one of the other buildings? Well, I think the back part being so sunken. <laughs> um, yeah. It's literally, if you cut a cross-section on that back part, um, the land for majority of its context around it sits above the roof line, you know. Yeah. So it is really sort of um, um, bunkered down in a sense. I'm not sure whether they would have seen um, that possibly being a great um, way to be in that back section without having seen how um, the spatial experience as well as the thermal comfort and other things that come from there. Because part of the common um, way people talk about designing up there is to build more lightly above the ground and let the ventilation do the cooling because typically um, it is quite um, um, hot country. Now, the distinction here when (laughs) when you're in – um, an hour in from the coastline and you're that much higher up, you get really strong diurnal difference. So it is actually quite cold at night time and you get quite mm. strong seasonal differences as well. So in summer, you can get really hot in during the day, but it can be really cool at night as well. So we had a hunch that if we can embed these structures that we can um, borrow from the thermal um, balancing of the, the earth itself. And we're really... Um, um, yeah, we were really um, joyed when we finished the structure and we did some um, testing that um, even um, even when the all the doors were open in the shed, mm. shed one, the inside temperature was about five degrees cooler than the outside because you've got all the um, benefits of the cools coming out of the earth behind you. And not only the temperature, but the kind of heaviness meant that um, the space had this calmness acoustically it was um, dampened and um, quite a uh, different sense of being in that space mm. as opposed to a more lightweight structure so I think there's lots of things that we found that worked really well and as long as we had sufficient airflow um, pathways in terms of um, getting that ventilation um, was that worked as well so that yeah I think that helped 
Um, I'll have to check and ask them whether that that would have, <laughs> might have been the case. But I think I think um, I know Shed One was a surprise um, as they yeah. emerged and a joy for them as well, and and seeing how that um, played out. So I feel like some of that evolved over time and allowed the pavilion design to be what it is and it may have not been that way if that was the first structure we ended yeah. up designing yeah because it's very different from the typical you know a lot of people's probably early introduction or my generation anyway would be glenn Murcutt in terms of australian architecture and australian homes very lightweight yeah, yeah. And very open-sided and up on the plane and you can imagine it's hot and the breezes coming through make it very kind of comfortable this yeah. is the total opposite sinking it right down a yeah. very heavy roof this roof could almost be a floor this could be yeah you could walk it. you could walk onto it from the rainforest i i mean th- this part that you're talking about i think is one of my favorite parts of this pavilion is the i love how the the roof the side of the roof has these two big concrete beams and here because it's so low they they carry on out they project out of the building and shoot into the landscape so you could almost walk on them like bridges and onto the roof if you wanted to yeah but the what's amazing about this space is what you've chosen to put in this is the most private part of the house it's the furthest end away from the town hall part that we were talking about before yeah and it's one of the most amazing bathrooms i've ever seen yeah yeah it's, it's a pretty crazy bathroom I, isn't it yeah i mean it's it's huge but it's it's open it's glass on all sides which it can yeah. be because yeah. i doubt anyone's going to be wandering through this um this landscape any at any point um it. so it's all open-sided as well but so it's it's interesting that this most dramatically kind of shows what siri was talking about as the landscape forming the the sides of the building and the facade but it's interesting that from a climatic point of view it has huge benefits as well yes um, but can you tell me right. tell me a little bit about this design because it's it's quite a bold choice to go i mean it's clearly an important part of the brief of did they say like we want a pretty amazing and special bathroom we're going to be using it every day and we want it to be spectacular oh. You I don't know whether that was. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think um, um, you know they're they're so adventurous, you know. So um, you know what what are the uh, uh, to set the scene? I think it's probably if we start from the pavilion. They they have um, uh, they have a lot of kids. And then kids with kids, so big family, big extended family. So initially they were um, kind of going, well, you know, if we have to have a house with all of these rooms, etc., it's going to be massive. And they do have a really strong aversion to having a big, massive home. It's the last Mm. thing they wanted from day one. So the conversation was always about, well, how do we sort of just make it look smaller or make it not more discreet in the landscape, et cetera. And so the first big gain was when the penny dropped, we don't necessarily have to have everyone staying in the same house. It actually is going to work better to um, yeah. have them housed in um, other other dwellings that existed on neighbouring sites, which ended up purchasing or um, other houses um, nearby. So that got rid of a whole lot of bedroom requirements and functional requirements. Yeah. And, and it was a similar spirit when we got to this. By the time we started working on this, you know, the working part is such a big part of the project story and the way that they connected with, um, with the site. They didn't want a sense of a house on the site. <laughs> and that was one of the reasons that we call it a town hall, etc. because when the workers are there and um, 
and 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 because it is a working site there's always people on site and this is a mm-hmm. gathering place for them as well not necessarily for recreation <laughs> it may happen at yeah. times in barbecues etc but yeah. just in catch-ups and meetings and you know um, talking to them so um they wanted to keep the what you might associate with the conventions of um, living in residential house as discreet as possible. So you actually go out of that front space outside <laughs> and then there's a discreet door, which you'd never know unless you've actually been privately yeah. um, asked to enter this secret door. And then you walk in and that's sort of your, you know, Alice in Wonderland um, moment because you, you just enter into a space that you never expected would exist because it just appears to as be a retaining wall forming the edge um the way yeah. that the land falls so you come into that space and it is about those series of surprises so you walk in and rather than walking into what might be a um a darker space you actually walk in under a linear skylight that's um quite um, um quite um brightly lit in most most of the yeah. year um, and the spaces, because of the geometry, the living area has a, has a triangular space to the interior component. And again, a large set of sliding doors that open out to a uh, covered area outside, uh, which they've strung up an artwork of hammocks that they enjoy um, swinging <laughs> in at times. <laughs> yeah. And then you turn around to be in their main um, um, bedroom. And again, all of those... Um, arrangements are set to have um, strong relationship to the landscape beyond. And I think mm-hmm. the bathroom just naturally fell out, to be honest. I don't think we were necessarily <laughs> going, let's just put the the biggest bathroom and the most, you know, um, uh, you know, most private part into the most um, exposed end part. By the time we got to back that end of a um, dwelling, it was, it was, it was where the site was most, um, enclosed, if you know what I mean, because of the topography, mm-hmm. most embedded. And um, with the landscape planted um, uh, envisioned there, it was going to be really private anyway. So um, yeah. the, the place, that that back section looks amazing at nighttime, particularly. Yes. Just with that landscape lit up around it, it is really, really special. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the progression of spaces then, from we've gone from the town hall, there's a secret door and it takes you into this triangular living room that's their kind of private living space that sits under one of the other rectangular roofs and then this principal kind of long rectangular roof then has the other remaining spaces which is their bedroom walk-in wardrobe and then this this lovely um bathroom mm. it's basically a one bedroom bungalow right mm-hmm. that's, the, that's <laughs> quite an extremely that's extremely it. special one that's bedroom it. bungalow that's it um but the bathroom space, I mean, if anyone's listening hasn't looked at the pictures yet, obviously I hope you do, but the um it's there's the the double sink vanity unit, which is a common thing that people ask for. But this is it's a freestanding thing with then glass and rainforest all around it. And then the only other key thing in the room, the toilet's tucked away somewhere a bit more sort of discreet and private, is a huge carved stone bath. It's pretty ceremonial isn't it as in the bath is right in the center of this space yeah 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 yeah, yeah. and yeah. again a sense of permanence i mean the material there's a there's even one of the 
there's a sort of hardwood tree trunk. Yeah, there's a log there. That's, 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 in the that's space right. As well. Yeah, that's yeah. it. That they found that they wanted to find a home for, and yeah, what a perfect place there. So yeah. And how were these discussions then on the more kind of domestic scale? Because there's obviously so many big things that you're talking about here on the on the site, but you also must have been having conversations about you know, where to store clothes and where would they want the vanity unit and all those kind of little practical things that we talk about with clients in the house. Yeah, how, yeah. How did that go? It didn't, it wasn't as, um, it didn't take up as much space because at the time we were designing it, um, they weren't planning to live there permanently. So it was a, um, it was a place that they, in, at the time, um, we're imagining they would come up, spend quite a lot of time of the year there, but um, more, um, you know, episodal rather than sort of long length of time. So yeah. um, it didn't have that demand. They, they have um, done other renovations and other um, work with architects um, in Sydney as well. So um, mm -hmm. nothing of this scale, but just um, through through what they've done, they kind of knew what they needed. So it was relatively straightforward. Um, uh, Do you think that helped then that they didn't, when it was being designed, it wasn't necessarily being conceived as their permanent residence? Do you think that yeah, I, maybe I think it, meant you didn't have to overthink it? I think so. Um, but look, to be honest, because my, most of the conversation was around those bigger um, topics of how it, the space may feel and relate to the site as a whole. Um, I think even if they knew they were going to spend um, or be their um, primary um, residence, I'm not sure whether, yeah, that would have changed the mm -hmm. design that much. Um because just yeah. just because the nature, the way that they found um, uh, the, the the meaning and engagement with the project was at that larger site project level, mm -hmm. rather than the focus on a house that they're going to spend a lot of yeah. time inside and um, looking to find um, function and meaning, you know, through through that lens. So. Have, have you had chance to reflect on this project? Because you've you've gone from one building to the next. Is there ever? Do you think there'll ever be a sense of kind of closure on this project and uh, reflection of what you've kind of achieved and what you'd maybe do differently? Or do you think it's always going to feel like a constantly evolving process? Are, you, are, there, are there plans for more de development on this site? Yeah, I think I feel like I've, um, that. Uh, uh, that that notion that yeah, it doesn't feel like that's something that's been conceived and built. It just feel, feels more now looking back and reflecting and engaging and seeing how the site's evolving as well, that um, you've been part of um, seeding something. You've sort of – I feel um, – I feel part of um, uh, it's it's more uh, from an ecological and a from both a natural ecological like the landscape as well as the social aspects of this that um, that we played a a key part in gestating that but we ourselves got lost in that as well and the projects sort of come through and emerge and it will 
itself have its own trajectories and um, shape. What do you mean you got you got lost in that? Well, because you because it happens iteratively over a process, mm. it doesn't feel like it's just conceived in one's head. Yes. Yeah. That you're getting the feedback from the way that site changes, the way that you start to see how um, people arriving on site, the builders, the contractors, our client, ourselves, our team, the way that we engage and see things have also um, changed over time because we're seeing the feedback loop of the work yeah. that we've done, the first projects we've done, as well as the way the site's changing, as well as the way that people's perspectives on things are getting kind of more nuanced and um, evolving over time. So, you know, if that, as that process iterates and plays out, it feels like you've been part of that um, evolving um, journey <laughs> mm. rather than uh, a, a standalone conception. <laughs> Yeah, and tender and 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 completion. So, um, yeah, it feel deeply part of the project um, uh, from from that perspective. Um, more than this idea that yeah, will will the project kind of be complete? <laughs> well, I guess I guess yeah. through through the time, it sort of felt like it's kind of. Um, it wasn't that kind of project where you design something and you finish it and it's complete and someone's living in it. It feels like an ongoing story that we've yeah. been, yeah, we've been part of. And how fluid was it in terms of the the ideas? And once you got to the pavilion, once you've had the experience of a few of the other buildings, um, how fluid did it come quite quickly? This design and this dialogue with the clients, or is this one of those things where you had multiple? variations and designs oh, and locations yeah. for the house yeah 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 well um the so after shed one um the second shed um we were looking at uh there's a desire to have some um aesthetic relationship to it but um also be quite different as well that sort of set the sense of how do you sort of connect things but have its own distinction um mm -hmm. And Andy was really keen on this idea of, well, maybe we should explore something because the other one's quite embedded. Maybe this one just should be a floating roof with no sense of structure. Yeah. <laughs> so something conceptually, yeah, fantastic. But we're just kind of going, well, what do we mean by that? I guess it has to be some sort of tensile structure if we want to have this sense of no column, no physical support. So how do you create something like that and hide the means of support, etc. So, um, yeah, that gives you a bit of clue to the dynamics. So we're trying things that we have never really even kind of um, uh, contemplated or even mm. consider how it may even start to um, look like or work. And it was only actually the engineer who's a good friend of um, the client after us sort of working through various iterations and trying to sort of imagine something, just said, Andy, this is not going to fucking work. <laughs> <laughs> you want a roof that big to just float? Well, it ain't happening. <laughs> um, so it's um, – so, but the spirit of it um, shifted. So rather than it literally not having any um, – uh, vertical support, visible vertical support 
below. It became a very large cantilevered roof. So the yeah. experience of it has the same experience, but it's very much sort of anchored um, at the back. Um, in, so it does have some physical support <laughs> down yeah. rather than relying on that in some hidden format outside the form of the roof. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah, the it, the so much of our conversation was of that nature was conceptual, was mm. about um, connecting to. Uh, the the landscape and the overall project story. Um, it was such a pleasure because you know where do you how often do you you know have a project where um, where the client engages with those um, bigger ambitions and bigger dimensions on of the place than yeah uh, the needs and sort of more focused desires and needs that play out in a, a shorter span of time so. And it was very open-ended yeah. like that. So, and the long time, um, and indeed we saw benefit of seeing this project happen over a long period. And I think that was one of the genius of them, because I think yeah. that allowed us to get that sort of sense of reflective engagement with the project. Yeah, seeing how the site changes, visiting it over um, over multiple times, and those dialogues to get richer and deeper as we went along. Yeah. So work, having worked with these clients and, you know, it sounds like you've, you've learned a lot from them as it's been a very good kind of dynamic. What, what would you say you have learned from them that has changed maybe the way that you design buildings now? Um, I think, um, I think it's seeing the opportunity in that dialogue, um, with the client, um, to, perhaps a deeper way that a client may engage with the project. Um, you know, it's, you know, it's the often classic thing architects often complain um, about the client not sort of getting a certain idea or not being open to a particular set of um, approaches or ideas that one might have. But, you know, it's interesting. No one complains about a site. You know, no one, no one tries to conceive <laughs> a building that would work beautifully on a flat site and then complain it's a steep site because every <laughs> every site obviously has its um, particular uh, um, opportunities and constraints and nuances and distinctions that if you can tune to that, you can have a more authentic engagement of that place. Um, yeah. I definitely with this project found such a joy in having a similar um, engagement with the client and uh, being such a great client and um, to to have that experience we opened up that possibility and how rich that is in the end because at the end of the day um, us as designers um, there are ways that we understand the project and we talk about it and we narrate it and a set of community that that um, that engages with that. But really the living culture of the place happens through the people who live there and share that story mm -hmm. and they connect and, and feel and experience the place through through their lens. And so if you can connect with that um, in a way that they can play out as a live, live phenomena, I think that's, yeah, there's real, real joy in seeing that happening. And what have they said about that and their experience of this architecture and living in it? Well, they engage mostly with the um, large project, but um, uh, 
they they speak of the similarity when they when they look at they like looking at um, the architecture in the way that it links to the bigger story and mm-hmm. they see that it does amplify um, the setting that they have um, have conceived and sort of built. Um, mm-hmm. Well, that, that's not the right language either. Um, they equally feel they've been part of a journey. <laughs> yeah. Because I think they equally sense that um, as we went along, we learned things about uh, what the project could mean. Mm-hmm. And and so I think the architecture is a... Um, the, the built physical elements are such strong visual elements and um, particularly done in the way that it's been done in Lunar Sand, they, they do provide a very strong foil to visually understand and, and register um, certain meaning or certain um, engagement with the broader setting. Um, mm-hmm. But they, yeah, they talk about in that spirit of, of how it makes the place more powerful mm-hmm. um, and um, gives them a stronger sense of... Um, yeah, of the journey they've um, been on and how the site's evolving and, and what yeah. the site means for them. So it's the architecture is spectacular. It's it's incredible. They're incredible buildings, incredible spaces that you've created. But still, the main the main sort of number one game here is the the landscape that's around it, and and that's part of the success. Do you think of this architecture that it's it still allows the the rainforest to be the main player? Yeah, yeah. I think it's that um, it's there's strong architecture. I mean, if you, you they're certainly not um, shy um, work. They are kind yeah. of assertive in that landscape, but it is it is with the view to amplify um, the overall site experience and the qualities mm-hmm. that are there. So um, that's the way that they relate to it as well. That that it helps to give them a more yeah. powerful sense of the place. And have you have you had a chance to stay there? I have. Or, you have. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's been, yeah. You, and what what was it like? Well, um, uh, the uh, it's strange to be honest, <laughs> because you did you, you, feel, spend... did you feel nervous using a bathroom with the, all the glass sides? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, day one, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> No, um, we. It just it it's it's strange because you it's it. We've I've stayed on the site, uh, not in the pavilion so much, but um, other parts of that site. Yeah, and and um, that feels far more comfortable because it's familiar with the. Um, it's the pavilion because it's still it is their private um, mm. home in a sense. You don't. You just don't feel as sort of comfortable, um, yeah. Um, um, staying there, um, but uh, I think the thing that uh, I'm not sure whether every architect um, has this feeling, but you know, you you imagine things through someone else's eyes, mm-hmm. 
you know, that that's what I do anyway in, in relation to the projects because you're thinking through the client's lens how they use it, how to place yeah. functions for the public, etc. So when you for a house is so personal too. So when you stay there, it just feels like you're the odd one out, you know. <laughs> it's, <laughs> because it's never been conceived through your own Yeah. <laughs> Um, um, your own sort of lens. So yeah, I just uh, yeah, I never really feel um, yeah, kind I've, of a I've form stuff. of a form of imposter syndrome. Kind of, yeah. I think I feel that. <laughs> yeah, in in yeah. some way, you're really. It's a strange feeling because you're really familiar because you've you you know it inside out, but from yeah. as a designer, not so much as as the as the occupant. <laughs> Of it. Yeah. So you enjoy it as a guest for sure. You know, that's mm. fantastic. But um, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I've, yeah, I'm just thinking of the other projects I've stayed um, as well as uh, when the client's been away. Yeah. Maybe yeah. it's different. I mean, I guess some projects we, we, we know them and we, we stay multiple times and then it sort of becomes <laughs> yeah. natural. But yes, yeah. I suppose this one's so unique that it's uh, it makes it that extra sort of uh, special as well. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna, John. I'm now gonna ask you the three questions that that I ask all of my guests, um, and start with uh, what is the one thing that really annoys you in your home? Oh, in my home. Yes. Ah. Oh, good one. Um. At the moment with COVID, it would be great to just have a separate room to do, <laughs> separate home office room. That's the <laughs> only thing that sort of bugs me. We've just, uh, I've got an apartment. We've just um, done a, a major renovation sort of three years ago. So every yep. little thing that I could want, we've, design to the nth degree so it is very easy yeah. place to live in and there's little joys in every part of the place so i could have told you a long list of them but at the moment yeah. i'm very content and yeah i've only really found frustrations between now with the covid having to but um my uh, wife and myself have to work at home together yeah um some of those functional sort of <laughs> irritations that's but it tends to be the, it, you couldn't yeah. foresee that. No, no, and it tends to be the actually. It's interesting. It tends to be the small functional irritations that bug you more than anything. Yeah. You know, when um, I definitely have it's little things like a light switch. I'm like, why did I put that there? Yeah, that kind of thing. <laughs> or, or you know, oh geez, you know, I wish I sort of, you know, where the garbage bin goes, or like because it's so it's such a pain to do X or Y, you know. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, just yeah, had a long list of them, and then most of them got ironed out Fixed. through through the renovations. <laughs> so maybe maybe in a couple of years' time, when new ones emerge, then I would have something yeah. to share. But at the moment, I'm I'm very happy where yeah where yeah. I am. So it's all good. Um, well, then with the next one, uh, Lunda Sang was was introduced to me as because somebody else picked this as their answer. This. Um, this question, um, but if you could describe one house that you have visited that's really inspired you, um, and tell me why. Yeah, um, look, the house that uh, has remained with me is a house I visited when I was at 
University, and uh, it's the Palm Garden House in the northern beaches here in Sydney by Rigla Pastria. It's a beautiful, um, uh, unique structure that sits again in a um, valley setting within a landscape of tall palm trees and coastal um, vegetation. And um, I guess for a young architect, just seeing how um, uniquely you could live somewhere and, and how open you could live um, in that private setting uh, was yeah something I've just yeah found really inspiring and um, has yeah has stayed with me since. Well, clearly then an inspiration for the um, the open sided uh, pavilion that we've been talking yeah, about today. Then yeah. that's right, that's right. As I'm saying, and I'm seeing the connections uh, and the yeah. love of the landscape. I think is something. Yeah, that's um, yeah that's that's been there as well. Interesting. Um, and then if you could choose any designer to design you a new home, who would you choose? Oh, um, there's a great um, Melbourne architect called Kirsten Thompson. And um, uh, I find her work really um, engaging. It's never hard to pin down, but there is something always that connects to um, the place and uh, an unexpected response to both the side and, and I think the, uh, the client and the brief around it. So mm -hmm. um, if I was, yeah, uh, engaging someone else to design a house, that would be, she seems like she would be great to work with and, um, yeah, to engage with. Okay, great. Well, uh, John, thank you very much for joining me today i feel you know there were a few buildings on this site we could have talked about all of them um hopefully we've done the project justice and covered uh even just one small part of this site um because it is a fascinating site a fascinating story um and thank you for sharing part of it with us today thanks george for your interest Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to find out more about Croffy Architects and about the Loon Desang project, then please visit the website at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com and try out my Instagram page to see the work of all my guests. Any regular listeners will know I've had a lot of Australian guests on the podcast, and for good reason. If you'd like to listen to a former episode with an Australian guest, you might like to listen to episode 12 with Vokes and Peters, where we discuss Tenerife House, a colonial-style Queensland home that has been radically transformed. To listen to the episode, you can visit the episode page on the website. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode, and thanks again for listening. Listening.